welcome to the Advance Your Art podcast, where we talk about the journey from artist to entrepreneur and everything in between. You've worked hard to hone your craft. Now take it to the next level with tips, techniques, strategies, and routines used by successful artists to grow their businesses and careers. Now, let's get started and have some fun with your host, Yuri Cataldo. Brian, good evening. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing well, Yuri. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to to learning something, which is what you told me would happen. <laughs> I definitely overpromised. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me. I, I really appreciate it. <laughs> so as I was going through your bio and reading things, I watched your TEDx talk um, about ideation and stimulation, which I found absolutely fascinating. Uh, because you're giving different case studies, which I always enjoy. What, first off, what made you want to do a TEDx talk, and then why that specific subject? Well, the the title of the talk was uh, "Creative Techniques to Solve Impossible Challenges," and that's frankly the work that I do. We facilitate ideation sessions. We do strategy. Um, we, we bring groups together to help them come up with, quote, big ideas. And frankly, it's, it's scary, right? I mean, I don't know what's going to happen when I lead these sessions. Um, and so these were just some stories that I wanted to share of situations where people would say, you know, that's, gosh, I, that's sort of impossible. How could we possibly reinvent a new way to, uh, sales project how many cars a large, uh, uh, auto co company is going to sell um, without using math. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, and so these were real-world examples, real-world stories of the work that we do. And so that was the frame. Now, to answer your question about why a TEDx talk, um, you know, I, I think it was probably out of laziness. I didn't want to do a, a, a video of me as a speaker <laughs> and, 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 and edit this, this finely edited uh, you know, three to five minute piece about why I'd be a great speaker. So I thought if I, if I can do a TEDx talk, I can just send that to people. And if they don't like it, they don't want me anyway. So that, that was part of the motivation, frankly, to have a, a cred. Cause I've given a fair, I've probably given 200 keynote speech over the speeches over the years, yeah. but I, uh, but I've never really had a video. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was part of the motivation. Plus I thought it would be fun. And if your if your listeners are that interested, it's not that much fun. <laughs> it's a lot of work. <laughs> it's a lot of work. You, you know, you have to figure this thing out. You can't go over 18 minutes. You don't have notes. And it's it's you're up there. You can't really see the audience. You got this, you know, bright light on you. And they basically say go. Yeah. And, you, and uh, you know, it's it's a bit stressful. So, I mean, it's fun to have done. Mm -hmm. But the pairing is is a lot of work. <laughs> Would you do another TEDx talk? I actually, I actually would. I actually would. <laughs> I, I, I'm thinking of doing one on uh, the the guy who was one of the most prolific writers in the history of America. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is Fran Stryker, and he was the one that created the Lone Ranger. He did 2,953 uh, 30-minute radio programs in the 30s and 40s, and what intrigued me about him 
was that he it was there was there was a rumor in the world of creativity literature that he had used a word combination technique mm -hmm. in order to generate all those themes and ideas and stories for the Lone Ranger uh, radio episodes. And so through a, quite a bit of research, I actually found the actual course guide that he used at the University of Buffalo. Uh, this was a few months before his death, actually, yeah. on how to teach people how to write um, or come up with ideas for stories. And it's, it's a word combination technique is, is what it is. So I thought that would make for a fun TEDx talk. Yeah, that definitely would. I'm interested in that right now. If not, are you, are you going to write a book about that? Or I, So I had not heard of this, but it sounds absolutely fascinating. Well, yeah, and it was weird because you'd read the history of radio and they, they'd allude to this, oh, and use this, it's, you could call it morphological analysis or word combination technique, yeah. where just, just briefly for your listeners, you might say you, you generate a list of characters in one column, you generate a list of needs, their needs they might have in a second column, you generate a list of obstacles in the third column, and you generate maybe a list of solutions in the fourth, and then you randomly combine those to trigger uh, ideas for your stories. And that's what he did. And that's how he was able to generate almost 3,000 of these uh, radio episodes. Um, he also created the Green, Green Hornet, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So, so uh, that, I thought that would be a, a fun thing. To answer your question, I, I will not be writing a book about that. I did write an article about um, how Sting uh, uses a version of this to write songs, which is... Uh, there's a technique called semantic intuition where you essentially name an idea before you know what it is. Mm -hmm. I'll repeat that. You name an idea before you know what it is. So you might title a song and then write the song. Okay. Or Neil Simon, I don't know if you know, but he got the name or the title, The Odd Couple, for the play, and then he wrote the play. So often it helps to get the title first or the log line even first and then write it. Yeah. Um, but to answer your question, no, I'm not going to write a book about that. Um, I am working on a young adult novel, though, about the misadventures of uh, some inventive young kids. And that's uh, I'm in the rewrite of that. My agent is sort of pushing me to say, hurry up and rewrite it. So I'm working on that. Are you using this technique in that book? No, but I'm, but I'm using uh, – thank you for that question. I'm using yeah. a bunch of different uh, creative techniques that we do in our work. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, wishing or worst idea technique or silly idea technique, whatever it is that the student, the, the young inventors here use to solve the challenges in the book. So it will be, uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, first and foremost, it has to be fun and entertaining. Mm -hmm. But in the process, kids will learn some of these techniques. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. All right. So I'd like to backtrack a little bit and sure. ask you about your college days. What made you want to study psychology? Uh, well, gosh, um, you know, it was it was not even a choice for me. It's odd as that may sound. I just um, I grew up in a an entrepreneur, an entrepreneurial household. My dad was an idea guy. He was an original madman with all that went with that. The smoking, drinking died fairly young in life. But but in but a brilliant guy he created, say, Pepsi, please and some other things. And he um, he instilled in me a, a, a desire and a love uh, of ideas. And so I became interested in how the mind works to create ideas. And so, you know, 
if they had had an idea major at Dartmouth, that's what I would have taken, but they didn't. So I took psychology, you know, obviously. And, uh, and so that, and I was fat, I, you know, I can remember being in the Baker library and saying, you know, this is fantastic. I couldn't believe I was at school learning something I was really interested in. Mm-hmm. How often did that happen? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you do after you graduated? So after I graduated, I flaked around for a lot of years. I even had card made, cards made up that said ideas. But you can't really make a living out of that, as it turns out. So what I initially did was, uh, well, I, I was passionate about understanding the creative process. And so I began interviewing experts in all the fields. I began writing in di- for different magazines, Success Magazine, Etc. Where, be, where I became a contributing editor, but of course, you know, you at least I couldn't make a living out of that. You know, I spent two weeks on an article, and you know, they pay me the twelve hundred dollars or fifteen hundred dollars, and that was the the high range, right? And uh, so it's very tough to to make a living out. I was writing um, promotional brochures and ad copy sort of freelancing, but but really, it was an excuse to try to survive while I pioneered or, or really tried to understand the creative process. Okay. Um, my life changed when uh, I had a friend who was at Frito-Lay, and she knew I was had become an expert in sort of creative approaches, and she said, could you help us name a new cheese Frito? And I said, sure, I'm not doing anything. And so I flew down there and ran this session, and we got um, nonstop nachos amongst uh, another 400 ideas. And they marketed under that, and that was, you know, a fair amount of money. And I said, oh, so I'll go facilitate sessions, which is what I did. Yeah. So is is that what I guess ins- inspired you to create the Mattermore Group, or was it, or sorry, Mattymore? Is that correct? Mattermore. It's my last name. Mattermore. Mattermore. Yeah. There it is. Okay. So the Mattermore Group. So is that yeah. what then, like, launched that idea, or was there something different? No, that I would say that launched it because I said, oh, this is fairly lucrative, and so let me go out. Actually, I had for your listeners, I don't know if they're interested in it, but I had like five or six different cards made up. One of them said naming. So we did naming work. One of them said positioning. One of them said strategy. One of them said promotion. You know, I had all these different cards so I could appear to be an expert in all these fields, which if you understand the creative process and can apply these creative techniques, in some sense, you can be an expert in all these fields. Mm-hmm. The, the the challenge of that was, I remember I did a, a project for Ernst & Young. It was to name a new online service, and we named it Ernie, and it was, you know, very well received. Um, that's all they thought of me then. They, I, I was only the naming guy to them. And so there is that danger. You Even, even in the world of, uh, I know this is true in acting, but you get even typecast in the world of ideas. Yeah. And, uh, so... Uh, it took a while to to move beyond that to to be sort of a broader idea generalist, if you will. Sure. Okay. And so, what what prompted you then to transition into the growth engine? Well, so before we got to growth engine, so I was doing all the, these this creative stuff, and then I was doing all these ideation sessions, and then um, actually, th- your listeners may be intrigued with this because this was sort of a wish fulfilled. I, I, the sales and marketing management magazine called me up and they had read about me or something and said, we're doing an article on how to train salespeople to be more creative. Mm-hmm. 
uh, are you, do you know anything about that? And I said, yeah, let me, let me call you back tomorrow. So that night I kind of made up all these different ways to get salespeople to be more creative because, you know, I knew the creative process. And so it was just a matter of applying it specifically to sales. Well, a month after that, I'm one of the three leading experts, according to sales and marketing management in the country on how to train salespeople to be more creative. Okay, you know, even though I made all this stuff up, right? Um, and, and and I actually thought there was some good ideas, but, I, you know, I had no research behind it. NetNet, an editor at Amacom, saw that. Then she, she wrote me and said, would you like to write a book on that? And I, I said, now I'm really in trouble, right? <laughs> but I said, no, but I'll write a general creativity book. And she said, great. So I was asked to write my first book, which was 99% Inspiration, uh, on all these adventures in the world of coming up with ideas. And that came out in 93, 94. And then I was asked when that came out, uh, they picked it as their membership offering. So they mailed it to 52,000 members. And so then my business just took off. I was getting, I was doing over 100 ideation sessions a year or brain sessions as they're known. Um, to answer your question, then Growth Engine, we formed that because after six years of doing that, 100 sessions a year, uh, it's a little flaky, right? I right. mean, you go in, you do a session, and you leave. And one of my leads clients, uh, Gary Fraser, who was named Market of the Year by Brandweek, um, we decided we formed Growth Engine in order to take ideas, not just the idea, but to bring it to market successfully and all the disciplines that requires. And so that was really fun, and that continues to be fun. And we've been doing that now for, oh, my gosh, 19 years or 18 years, 19 years. So... Um, if you do the math, I guess I'm fairly old now. <laughs> no, nah, not at all. Uh, <laughs> so I'm so you. I'm curious then about uh, I guess the the philosophy you use. So you said you do ideation sessions and that's yes, like, that's like you know now design thinking is a a very common term, especially with with companies like with IDEO um, and a few other ones. Is there a particular when you do ideation sessions? Are there particular strategies that you use or systems that you use to help out people, or is it something that you've created on your own to help them, you know, break through into a more creative mindset? It's, that's a great question. The what one of my contributions to the field has been to, and there there are dozens and dozens. You might even say hundreds of different quote ideation techniques or brainstorming techniques Um, and and so my one of my contributions to the field has been a to invent new techniques but also to customize techniques for specific kinds of business challenges so that if you have a new product development challenge we've experimented and we know that semantic intuition a word combination technique will be very successful from a percentage standpoint. You have a high likelihood of success if you use that technique. If you're doing strategy work, um, then, you know, we have a technique called disruptive wargaming or approach that we've invented. We know that has a high likelihood of success. If you're doing positioning work, then there's a technique we call headliner where you use cliches and other kinds of things to trigger new ideas. We know that has a very high success rate. So, there's an empirical basis for the work we do, and I and in my book Idea Stormers, I share all these processes. If anybody's uh, interested, which ones will work uh, for those kinds of for different kinds of challenges. 
So so that's one element. That's at almost a technical or technique level. At a higher level, it's how do you choreograph these things, and we call it focused ideation, which, of course, is an oxymoronic term. But we want to get ideas that are both different and unique and surprising, yeah. yet um, relevant and useful. And that's the creative tension we're trying to reconcile, reconcile when we do our work. Uh, because, you know, if it's, if it's different but ridiculous and not relevant, that doesn't help us. Or if it's too close in, you know, that doesn't help us. So that's what we're trying to do. So the work that we do is sort of figuring out which techniques, how to choreograph them in a, in a session. And then finally, I would say we are creative about our own creative processes, which is really fun. So we're always inventing new approaches where it's disruptive wargaming or global virtual ideation or trade link or all different approaches to help companies uh, deal with these challenges. Um, if you want, I could talk a little bit about design thinking because that's become so hot. Um, IDEO was, you know, the one that sort of created that term. Mm -hmm. uh, these, it's nothing new, but they were very smart in how they packaged what they were doing. The, the key to it is one, to get consumer in, input. Another is to do it quickly, you know, sort of minimum viable product stuff, the lean innovation stuff, um, and then to do it iteratively. So you're constantly um, coming up with design ideas or prototypes, you're showing them to consumers, you're getting feedback, and you're doing that iteratively. And I would dare say most innovation agencies, including ours, Growth Engine, has some version of that and has been doing some version of that for many, many years. Mm -hmm. uh, but their reputation as, you know, brilliant design thinkers, um, they they sort of integrated that and called it design thinking. And it was a very smart, it, to me, it's a very smart packaging idea or uh, marketing idea or positioning idea of, of the work they do. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, definitely. They yeah. Yeah, because they pretty much are synonymous with that nowadays. With um, so with your second book, uh, Idea Stormers, yep. what made you want to write that book, or decided to write that book? Well, that was because if you look at the history, um, you know, I wrote uh, 99% Inspiration in '93, um, and 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 here it was almost 20 years later that I wrote uh, Idea Stormers. Uh, I wrote it, first of all, I wanted to see what it was like to actually go through the process of getting an agent, writing the proposal. The proposal was almost 100 pages, which is ridiculous, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, selling it, uh, getting it advanced. I wanted, I, I was interested to see the process rather than just being asked to write the book. Mm -hmm. And so I did all that, and that was kind of, that was fun to see. My agents are, are great. Um, and, uh, but the reason what was behind it was I now had 20 years of original stories and techniques and empirical evidence about our work. And the book, it's really targeted for big business. I mean, we've worked with Fortune 500 companies or medium and large companies. But I knew it would have advantages to smaller companies who couldn't necessarily afford our fees but could really use these techniques. And so that was part of the motivation is to share this stuff with the world um, because, you know, my my work on this planet, I hope it doesn't sound too grandiose, but it is to really uh, popularize the structure of creativity. Mm -hmm. and, and so that's, that was part of the impetus for writing that second book. Sure. 
And then a couple of years ago, or I'm sorry, 2015, so three years ago, you wrote 21 Days to a Big Idea. What? So what was the idea behind that book, and why did you want to write that? Well, I didn't want to write it. Because <laughs> 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 I had written the other one, and it was really hard. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was a lot of work. And so, uh, but what happened was um, there's a, a lean innovation guru. His name is Bob Dorf. He teaches entrepreneurship at Columbia. He wrote the book with Steve Blank, the other another lean innovation guru, the Startup Owner's Manual. Bob is a friend of mine. We both volunteer for the homeless shelter uh, in Stamford, Connecticut, and 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 I've known Bob for a long time, and he's a great guy. Well, he came to me and he said, you know, um, my students at Columbia and also in Moscow at Skolkovo University. Uh, they're great. They're brilliant kids or younger people. Um, but their ideas in general are pretty bad. You know, <laughs> ideas aren't so good for these yeah. ventures. And he'd say maybe one out of 12 of these ideas, 8% or what is any good. Can you come up with a process to help them get better ideas? Mm-hmm. And I said, ah, let me think about it. So I went up, I was going on vacation. I thought about it and I decided what I would do is I'd, give myself the challenge of coming up with a big idea every day for 30 days. Mm-hmm. In the process of doing that, a big idea for a new business, a new product, an invention, um, because I wanted to walk the talk, right? Yeah. And so I, I, I decided I would do that experiment and in the process watch my own process as to how I did that and then formalize that in the book. Mm-hmm. And ultimately what happened and you'd say, well, why wasn't it 30 days? Well, I stopped after 21 because it was really hard. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but I said 21 is probably good enough. Yeah. And, and when I wrote the book I, and there's, you know, you've seen 21 days to a thinner you and everybody has this magic uh, 21 day thing. And I said in the book, I said, well, you know, you can get a behavior change and research has shown that you can blah, blah, blah with 21 days. Yeah. And of course, my editor said, what research? And I'm like, ugh. So, uh, so I had to research that. Um, the, where that came from it was actually Maxwell Maltz, who wrote Psycho-Cybernetics. He, um, he found that when, people, when his patients, he was a doctor, experienced uh, the phantom limb from amputations, mm-hmm. that tend to go away after 21 days. And so that's where that 21 days came from. Oh, interesting. Because change really, if we're honest about it, might take 80 to 90 days, 88 to 90 days. Right. But, but 21 days, I couldn't be 80 days to a big idea. It's 21 days to a big idea. Yeah, it's better marketing with 21 days. No one wants to wait 80 days for anything. And frankly, if you get a big idea, if you have 21 big ideas to choose from, you're going to have a big idea, a real big idea in there. So that, you know, so it kind of works. Yeah, definitely. Do you do you mind going into a couple of strategies that you teach people on how to come up with big ideas? Because I have a lot of college students who listen to this podcast, so I'm sure they would love to hear at least one great takeaway. Well, one takeaway is to spend nine or 10 or 12 bucks and buy the book. That would be (laughs) But, but, you know, in the book I have, um, as I went through this, one of the key tenets of coming up with the idea is stimuli, right? Because if you sit there and say, God, I can't think of anything. Well, it's because you got to trigger yourself with stimuli. Mm -hmm. And so... And that's what I was doing over those those 21 days. I was getting all kinds of stimuli to trigger myself. So, for instance, uh, I go to the we were on vacation in, in Cape May and I go to the, you know, the bookstore and and come home with 20 different magazines. And my wife is like, 
honey, what's with 17 magazine, you know, <laughs> right? And, and say, well, no, it's, it's for this thing I'm doing, right? She said, okay. Uh, but, uh, but for instance, there's an annual for, uh, uh, for, um, Time Inc. or Time Magazine has an annual of inventions, right? Yeah. And so one of the inventions in there that was kind of cool was this guy had come up with, I think it was like a, a $12 uh, bicycle entirely made out of cardboard, okay, except for the chain, right? Yeah. But he essentially figured out how to make a bicycle out of specially treated cardboard to make a really cheap bike. Well, if you're reading that with a creative ear and a creative eye, you've said, here's a technology. Where could we take that treated cardboard and where else can we use that technology, right? Yeah. And so in the book, I came up with 30 or 40 different ideas around that. And from that, I get one that I really liked. By the way, that's another principle here. Is you, if you want to get a big idea, come up with 25 or 30 ideas. Mm -hmm. You don't start with one. So, um, so that's one of the strategies in the book is adapt to technology, okay. right? Yeah. Uh, existing techno technology. There are five major strategies. Obviously, what's the problem is the strategy. Um, help people self-actualize. Um, Lumosity was about, right? Helping yeah. people self-actualize. Uh, save people time or save them money. Um, and then in increase the speed or efficiency of something. All those are strategies that I outline in the book. And then I'll give about a dozen different techniques specifically on how to generate ideas in there. So one of them might be the wish technique or the worst idea technique or word combinations or picture prompts, um, or whatever. I, I will give your, your listeners a trick that they can use in the next really 10 seconds and invent probably a really cool invention. Okay. How's that for a setup? That's a fantastic setup. <laughs> I am, I am, you have my full attention. And, and by the way, I've tested this with 600 librarians, uh, in, in Chicago. I was asked to give a keynote speech on creativity with 600 librarians. Uh, and I called five brave volunteers and I said, what's the chances that these five librarians can come up with a, a new invention in the next 30 seconds? And of course they all did. Um, <laughs> so here's the trick. Yeah. And there, there, there are like 12 of these trigger words, but the most effective trigger word in these times is the word smart. So that if you put the word smart in front of anything, I don't care what a smart, a, a noun, right? A smart. Right a smart table, a smart clicker, a smart beverage, whatever it is, that will generate a really interesting thought stream and potentially a really big idea. Yeah. Um, you know, just think about a smart eye, smart glasses, smart teeth, smart refrigerator, smart uh, notebook. All of a sudden, you're into the world of Internet of Things, obviously, and, mm -hmm. and, and of course, uh, the, the embedding of all those technologies within, th within things is now possible and you're off and running. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I uh, so I spend a lot of time with companies who who work on problems like this, and you know, you're just you throw in like a, the keyword blockchain or AI, and you got that's, it. And, yeah, exactly. Like you've just named about a half a dozen other products that I have chatted with in the last like six months, because um, yeah. they're all like smart somethings integrating <laughs> using AI technology or using blockchain to solve this. And it's just so yeah, that's a, a fantastic strategy. That's great. Well, I mean, Verizon, uh, you know, they, they, and I mentioned this in the, the TEDx talk, they, uh, 
you know, they're talking about smart asphalt. Well, what is that? Well, it lets it lets you know wear patterns. It lets you know where hole, holes might occur. It may, gives you directional, et cetera, et cetera. So it doesn't matter. You can apply it to anything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, so I work with a lot of construction companies because I work for a, a software company that does that. And so it's it's smart buildings and how do buildings tell you exactly like what's happening and what location and um, they use the term BIM a lot, which is building information management. But it's that's exactly what it is. It's a, a smart building. Yeah, it works great for stupid tenants. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I'm kidding. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, in, so you have worked with dozens and dozens and dozens of huge companies. What yes. has been your favorite product to work on in any kind of way? Uh, well, you know, the, what everybody says, the one I'm working on now, which I hate that answer, so I won't give you the answer. Good, because I don't like that one either. I, I hate that. Although I, I will tell you, you know, we're doing work now with uh, a wipe, a wiper blade company. We're working with the U.S. Copyright Office. We're working with the Container Corporation. We're working with, uh, I can mention, we're doing some work with Newman's Own and on and on and on. So the variety is, unbelievably fun right that's yeah. unbelievably great i you know i do enjoy um and, and we've worked with services you know bny mel and help us reinvent banking etc cetera, etc cetera. but i i do enjoy sometimes actually the products you know and so you know inventing a new chips ahoy the brownie chips ahoy was something that came out of our work i mean that was fun to work on I, you know Wait, so sorry, the brownie chips ahoy yeah brownie brownie chips ahoy do you know yeah. that product oh I, yeah it's I don't, but I feel like I need to know this. Oh my God, it's it's delicious. Um, we did a, a word combination technique combining desserts and ingredients, and uh, with the brownie chip with the uh, chips away cookie. Yeah. And one of the ideas that came out of that was to and layer was another trigger word. Put a layer of brownie inside a chocolate chip cookie, and so their engineers and figured out how to do that. We tested that. It tested off the roof uh, in, in terms of who doesn't love a chocolate chip brownie. Well, except well, you know, it's funny you would say that because because when it came out, a woman was at the store and I noticed I didn't know the woman. I see she was buying it, and I went up to her. Of course, I had to ask her. I'm like, well, why why did you buy that? And she looked at me like I was the idiot that I was in a sense. And she said, it's a brownie inside of a chocolate chip cookie. You know, it's kind of like what's more obvious than that or. Exactly. Which is what you said. And so um, what's wonderful about that product, though, is now because they figured out how to put a layer inside of a chocolate chip cookie, we now have uh, red velvet frosting inside versions. You know, I don't know. We have fudge. We have uh, birthday cake frosting. And they even, if you can believe this, because they own Oreo, they also yeah. even put Oreo filling in there, which I, I can't believe they did that. But it's. She did pretty well. Yeah. Um, so, so the whole idea is it led to a platform of other of the other products. So anyway, that was that's kind of fun to work on on you know cookies. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That sounds amazing. Yeah. So, so the, in approaching some of these situations, there there have to be times where you felt maybe apprehensive or fearful, how or even uh, creatively blocked. How yeah. do you approach times when when you come across? create a, you know, a, a block like that because of fear or whatever reason, and how do you move past that? Yeah, um, part of it is now, because I've done this over a thousand times, um, 
there's a there's less fear than there used to be. That being said, the night before, I'm sitting there and I've got a process plan, but I'm thinking I can't think of another I can't think of an Oreo cookie idea. I'm we're we're gonna die an ugly death here when we do this session, right? Oreo cookies have been around for a hundred years. Damn, I can't think of anything, right? I might be in that situation, and that's nerve-wracking. That being said, um, because I've done these processes so much, because I've worked to design the session and get the right triggers and stimuli, and that's important, the right triggers, uh, and I can talk about some of those triggers beside the techniques if you want, and because I've encouraged the company to get cross-functional people uh, people of different backgrounds sometimes will involve con creative consumers, et cetera, et cetera. Because of all that, there's a part of me that knows it's going to work, and it does. And somehow at the end of the day, we'll have 200 new Oreo ideas, um, about 15% of which are really interesting or exciting. So it's a, a relatively small number, 30, let's say. Of those, we might bring to focus group testing, qualitative testing, maybe 18 of those, maybe uh, nine, they decide they want to do, you know, cost-benefit analysis on. Of those, they might, you know, quantitatively test five or six. Of those, two might make the final cut, and you know, they launch one. Yeah. So those are the numbers. But, but to answer your original question, um, it's it's because I've done it so much now. I'm I'm scared the night before, but it kind of always works. Okay, sure. So, so, yeah, you mentioned triggers. What do you mean by triggers, and, and how do you use those to help with the creative process? So one of the most fun things I, that I do is coming up with new new processes, right, and how to customize existing pro processes. So, for instance, we were working with a large dairy company. We were inventing new, uh, you know, uh, dairy beverages and, and, and products. And so how do you get new ideas? You know, well, one, we would get menus, for instance, and use those to trigger ideas. One of the more intriguing things, though, was to get menus um, from actually the turn of the century. Mm -hmm. So these are menus that are over 100 years old. Um, I had discovered that the New York Public Library has a, has a collection of um, online collection now of over, I, I believe it's 80,000 menus from the history of the country. Wow. So I go through and I look at those and I pull out, you know, the menu from the 1898 Waldorf Astoria and use that to trigger ideas for dairy beverage. Oh. And so it's fantastic, right? And so I love the opportunity to find new ways to, to trigger people. Another trigger, for instance, is a technique we invented called patent prompts. Mm -hmm. um, in the last 15 years or so, the uh, U.S. Patent Trademark and Data Office has put all their patents online, and they're searchable by keywords. And so if we're trying to invent a new vacuum cleaner, uh, I might put in the word flow or uh, suction or whatever it is, and, and, and it might pull up a thousand abstracts of outside of, uh, you know, a vacuum cleaning, right? It could be airfoils. I mean, it could be car system, whatever it is. I would pull out maybe a hundred of those very interesting patents um, and use those to trigger ideas where people could transfer the principle to invent a new vacuum cleaner. Mm -hmm. 
So those are two examples of, quote, inventing new techniques or generating stimuli that will trigger uh, ideas, again, that are different but relevant to the task we're working on. Yeah, wow. So in everything that you've done so far, what would you say has been the best advice you've ever received? Wow. Uh, let's see. Um Gosh, uh, you know, um, I, I think, uh, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to be truly honest and frank about this, mm-hmm. it might be that my dad had said, he, he had kind of said to me, because he was an icon in the family, right? He was this yeah. creative guy. He said, um, gee, I'm not, I'm not sure, um, that you might be as creative as your brother. And of course, that was a wound in the heart, right? Um, and I said, and so that may have been, I don't know if you'd call that advice. That was kind of a side comment that he probably didn't even know he'd said. Yeah. Um, just offhanded comment. But I took that in a way to heart and said, well, how could you, how could I make myself more creative? So I don't know if that was advice. You could call it impetus mm-hmm. for life's work and it and it rang true to to me to try to figure out how to help myself and how to help others be more creative so if we're overly freudian about this i guess we're there but uh <laughs> but but that, i don't know if you call that advice or a moment in time that that um encouraged me to pursue my life's work yeah oh yeah definitely yeah so what were so because of that and the fact that you have made yourself this absolutely dynamic creative individual um apart from some of the things you did with studying psychology and a few other things were there are there there books that you read or courses you took or just exercises you did that helped make you more creative or creatively minded uh you know one of the things that i that i can feel good about myself is I give myself the ability to not be great at something at the beginning. And so, you know, even at Dartmouth or even school, I tend to get maybe a C or a B or a B minus or something to start. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't particularly do well, but by the end I was getting an A because I was, I, I was very open to learning how to learn and watching what was happening, figuring out what the professor wanted. So I, I've given myself the freedom and the ability to, to not really know what I'm doing at the beginning. And I think for overachievers, that's really, really important. People who are, are used to succeeding in the world to, to, to let themselves not know. Like writing this new uh, young adult novel. I mean, writing a novel, I, I, I'm not suited to that particularly, you know emotional you know emotions give me a break right <laughs> so, and so i've been teaching myself how to do that now for probably 10 years mm-hmm. and 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 i'm getting to the point where i can actually probably do it successfully we'll see um but the wonderful thing about this this country and this planet is that there is so much in free instruction out there. The master courses, right? You, I'm sure you know those. Well, I've, I've taken writing courses in a sense. I've been there with uh, David Mamet, James Patterson, Aaron Sorkin. You know, these are all their professors, so I kind of hang out with them, you know, figuratively. And um, 
and, and so they're my teachers. So if you can use your imagination um, with the things you're reading or the things you're experiencing, um, you can uh, you can have these people be your teachers and learn an incredible amount. Yeah, definitely. So I, I have heard of master courses, but I haven't taken any. But uh, so I take it you would highly recommend master yeah. courses. Master class, but you know also the classes. Yeah, I mean, sorry. Can, yeah, I mean it's amazing uh, how much uh, how much wonderful from world class experts are there to instruct you on pretty much anything you want to learn. Yeah. My son is a real Renaissance kid, and he he just got his pilot's license. But anytime he wants to learn learn anything, he just goes online, does it, and he you know he, he knitted everybody a sweater for Christmas. <laughs> I mean, a scarf. He did that for everybody. I mean, just because he he went online and learned how to do it. So, yeah. um, we, in the history of the planet, we have never had more uh, better teachers or access to teachers than ever before, and that's an incredible opportunity for all of us. Yeah, definitely. Well, awesome. Thank you, Brian, again for taking time uh, to chat with me. I really appreciate it. This was if, fun. Oh, good. Thank you. If the uh, if the listeners would like to see more about your work and and potentially purchase your books, where is the best place they can do that or get a hold of you? Yeah. Um, well, growth-engine.com is is our website. Uh, I guess I'll share my telephone number. <laughs> you, you don't have to if you don't want to. But well, the, you're more my, than welcome to if you want. Yeah. I mean, people can call me. I guess it's uh, 203. Uh, it's in Connecticut, 203-857-4494. Probably the easiest thing is to, to reach out on LinkedIn, um, you know, Brian Mattimore, or send me an email, bmattimore at growth-engine.com. You know, I'm, I'm happy to, to, to talk to, to folks about things they're up to. And, uh, you know, I, I do think if they read some of the books, they'll, they'll get a lot of what I could share just through the reading. Okay. And I think it'd be helpful. Perfect. All right. I, I will put those links in the show notes. Uh, okay. So people can connect with you on LinkedIn and, and uh, send you emails. So that sounds good. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much, Brian. I really appreciate it. This was great. It was fun. And I, I, I think I learned a lot about myself in the process. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening to another episode of the Advance Your Hour podcast. If you like this episode, please go into iTunes and give us a five-star rating. And while you're there, hit the subscribe button so that every single time I release a new episode, it will go directly to you without even thinking about it. If you're interested in hearing older episodes, please go to AdvanceYourArt.com where you can find the catalog of everything I've done so far, as well as contact information and projects I'm working on. Thank you again, and have a great day.